I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.
Hi there and welcome again to the Explaining History podcast and today I'm going to talk a little bit uh, about the conditions in Eastern Europe, particularly Czechoslovakia, after the Prague Spring of 1968. The Prague Spring was the the, the last um, violent uh, invasion of uh, Eastern European countries by the Soviet Union. There'd been a, a previous in, uh, assault on uh, attempts to democratise in 1956 in, in Hungary and uh, the crushing of workers' movements, uh, dem- democratic workers' movements in uh, Poland uh, before that in 1953 and even an, an uprising uh, against Soviet rule in the late 1940s in the GDR. Um, so the the conditions that existed that um, represent Attempts at uh, the Soviet Union and its uh, satellite governments in Czechoslovakia trying to resolve a a dilemma. Um, There was little real option of of a full reversion to Stalinism, um, even though the suppression of um, Alexander Dubček's uh, movement in Czechoslovakia had been you know violent ruthless and authoritarian and it involved the entirety of, of the warsaw pact it wasn't just the soviet union it was other countries such as poland and uh, hungary agitating uh, for something to be done and uh, at least germany for something to be done uh, about this um, alarming turn of events in Czechoslovakia um, and in the, the invasion happened with huge numbers of troops, well, armies in the hundreds of thousands um, from the other Warsaw Pact countries poured into Czechoslovakia, which is not, not a vast uh, country. But Stalinism itself um, had long since been consigned to the, uh, the dustbin uh, of history in the Soviet Union. That's not to suggest that the Soviet Union was becoming a particularly liberal or enlightened place, but the return to mass arrests, executions, gulags, uh, and um, that kind of intense um, state-led um, authoritarian um, per- class persecution, that didn't occur. Instead, the, the, the um, Communist Party in both uh, the Soviet Union and Czechoslovakia attempted with different models of, of repression. There were, of course, numerous Stalinists amongst them, um, but they attempted to um, conceive of a, a model of, of state repression and authoritarianism that was they were able to to justify to the rest of the world. There's some interesting stuff that Tony Judd writes about um, Hungary in 1956 and uh, Prague in uh, 1968, uh, and he points out the fact that the the kind of the credibility, uh, the anti-fascist credibility that the Soviet Union had was um, squandered in these these two moments. And uh, after 1968, there nobody could uh, claim hold on to any claim that there was anything progressive left about the soviet union or there was anything emancipatory about soviet communism all it was was a stagnating economic system um, that was reliant on brute force 
in order to patrol its borders and to keep its satellite states in order. So to, today I'm reading from um, Eastern Europe in the 20th century and after by R.J. Crumpton. And he writes, The Soviet reaction to the emergence of reformism within the CPCS, the Communist Party of Czechoslovakia, prompted a general tightening of party reins in Eastern Europe, which persisted until the mid-1970s. At the same time, most Eastern European parties announced that they had moved from the stage of socialist construction into real existing developed or mature socialism. Party programmes and state constitutions appropriate to this new stage of historical development were adopted. The socialist stage was in theory one in which material provision would increase rapidly, consumer goods and services would become ever cheaper and more widely available, but if the years 1956 to 68 ended with the bankruptcy of ideological communism, the years 68 to 80 in, uh, ended with the failure of consumer communism. This term mature socialism is um, interesting and it is a kind of one of the, the sort of like the weasel terms of the Brezhnev era. Brezhnev was the uh, first Soviet leader um, to uh, really uh, accept the fact that there would never be the kind of communism that Marx or Lenin predicted, that the the, the um, socialist world that um, was under construction would always be a work in progress, and the kind of uh, abun uh, abundant um, utopia uh, that Marx predicted, which would essentially, uh, through uh, socialist construction, create communism and mass production, uh, which would answer the, the, the final questions of humanity's relations with one another and with um, the, 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 the planet and its resources and economics itself. This was, um, as far as Brezhnev was concerned, a, a busted flush. Khrushchev might have believed it. I suspect perhaps even he was having his doubts. But mature socialism then was a term that Brezhnev adopted to say, well, you know, we're not going to be doing this sort of um, exceedingly kind of utopian uh, concept of, of uh, you know, the revolution, you know, so um, communist plenty are arriving one day. Uh, instead, we are going to be um, avoiding all sorts of revolutionary upheavals by kind of creating an authoritarian and managed society in which we will attempt to tweak at the edges and improve living standards as they exist uh, now. And what it meant for um, the societies um, that were repressed under um, still Stalinist parties uh, in Eastern Europe was um, a, a kind of a, a greater focus on in improving living standards. It was clear that there could be no revolutionary political change. You can't, you can't overthrow parties that have a monopoly on military and state and police power. But what that, those parties can offer are, um, so, are some vague improvement in living standards. And the, in many ways, the destruction of communism in Eastern Europe was done not by um, Western military power or intelligence power or the CIA, but it was done by Western banks. It was done by debt, the, in, the injection of debt into Eastern Europe. Um, and this is something I, I really want to talk a lot about in, in uh, future uh, podcasts.
Um, RJ Crampton writes, if the East European economies were to provide improved living standards, they would have to be modernised and geared into intensive rather than extensive development. Such a transition would be difficult for a variety of reasons. The labour force has never been educated or trained to appreciate the importance of the quality rather than the quantity of production. Capital could not be generated in sufficient volume to invest in new technologies, and those uh, that were adopted were earmarked primarily for the military. Besides which, it is doubtful whether any plan system could cope with the technological innovations as profound and uh, as frequent and as rapid as those of, of the 1970s and 1980s. One avenue of escape from the dearth of capital and from socialism's increasingly disadvantaged position in the technology race was to import or to steal know-how and equipment from the West. In the um, the 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 Mitrican archive, which is uh, Christopher Andrews' um, book uh, about the the greatest intelligence hall of the 20th century, um, a Soviet intelligence officer, Vasily Mitrikin, uh, turned up at the uh, British Embassy in Riga in Latvia uh, the, after the end of the um, of communism and the fall of the Berlin Wall with two suitcases full of uh, secret documents. And uh, it showed that there was this, this fundamental transition in the 1960s away from um, intelligence work by the Soviet Union focused on um, uh, infiltrating uh, networks like um, MI6, following the, the kind of the, the uh, exposure of the Cambridge spies and that kind of thing to stealing secrets which were of economic value. The uh, Soviet uh, intelligence agencies and Eastern European intelligence agencies uh, believed under the Brezhnev, uh, in the Brezhnev era, that they were engaged in a kind of like an economic war uh, and uh, they were stealing uh, anything and everything from mechanical processes to um, agricultural ideas, uh, technology that would uh, improve kind of consumer industries in the Soviet Union. Um, uh, to a aviation secrets, which obviously have military uh, connotations, um, but it enabled the Soviet Union, for example, to, to launch their own kind of ersatz version of Concord in the 1970s, which uh, exploded. Um, the other way that the, uh, the Eastern European countries would try to kind of escape the deadlock of uh, low investment, uh, low skills, and uh, therefore uh, weak economies that led to dissatisfied populations, which led to instability, which led to uprisings, was to borrow money uh, and to borrow directly from, from Western banks. And there is a, there's a, a whole lot written about this in um, uh, Strange Rebels by Christian Carroll. Um, if technology were to be imported, there had to be an easier relationship, political and economic, with the Western powers, and above all, the United States. Political détente was achieved in the Helsinki agreements of the summer of 1975. Closer economic links had been developing in the 1970s, when a number of East European states had decided to borrow from the West in order to finance domestic modernization. Initially, this had been easy, as the Western banks were even eager to lend, Interest rates were low 
and trade was sufficiently buoyant to suppose that the loans could be serviced from exports. The great oil price increase of 1973 transformed the situation. Credit became much more difficult to find, interest rates rose, and trade contracted. To make matters worse, the Soviets were forced to bring their oil prices more in line with world market levels, which placed a huge extra burden on many East European states. It's, it's possible to argue credibly that um, Soviet communism never fully recovered from the oil crisis of the 1970s. Um, the long period of stagnation in the Soviet Union into the 1980s, I, I mean, it's sometime, in some ways mirrors the, the capitalist world. Um, two oil shocks in the 70s had ramifications in Europe and America uh, until um, the, 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 the mid-1980s. One might argue that the popularity and the electoral popularity of Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan uh, is based on two oil shocks blowing apart a tottering social democratic um, uh, sort of uh, so social democratic moment in in the in the the Anglosphere. Um, but it's certainly it, it, with weaker economies in Eastern Europe two oil shocks and the injection of debt into those economies by western banks was hugely detrimental um and it meant that um the the kind of the 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 intellectual bases for soviet communism in the 1970s had been so undermined because all that um, soviet satellite states were doing at the time was appealing to uh, capitalist institutions to help finance them and then even that fails um, because um, the, the fickleness of markets uh, responding to the crises of the 1970s meant that debts become unserviceable and the, the, um, the satellite states of Eastern Europe uh, had always benefited from cheap Soviet oil and gas, of which the Soviet Union has a lot of. This was the Soviet Union's way of um, subsidising and sweetening um, the uh, the kind of the loyalties of those regimes. Um, the the in, the interesting fact here is that the Soviet Union was forced to kind of harmonise its oil and gas prices with the rest of the world. Um, meaning that, in a way, globalization and the, the globalization of the of the world economy and the globalization of economic shock uh, gets its its claws into a, a Soviet economy which was incapable of fully isolating itself and insulating itself from the rest of the world, as were Eastern European economies. One key indicator of that was in by the early nineteen sixties. The Soviet Union uh, had to kind of accept that it was not food self-sufficient and actually began to import grain and animal feed from the United States. Eastern European countries then found themselves in the kind of the debt traps that many African uh, and Southeast Asian countries had found, well, poorer Southeast Asian countries anyway, had found themselves in in the post-war era, having to borrow money to service existing debt. Um, by 1981, the East European and Soviet debt to the United States and Western Europe was 15 times greater than it was in 1970. 
East European borrowers were left with the stark choice of defaulting, allowing their debts to mount until they became crippling, or depriving the home market in order to export what they could to pay off their debt. I mean, this debt has been one of the most powerful tools of uh, Western hegemony in the, the 20th century. The um, use of uh, structural adjustment programmes, um, which is the, the enforcement of austerity measures, privatisation uh, on countries uh, uh, that have very weak social infrastructure and are poor to begin with, uh, the introduction of economic shock therapy in places like uh, Argentina or Malawi or uh, Tanzania um, that become indebted to Western banks is um, a, a kind of a tried and trusted trick. And this was what Eastern European countries, Poland, Hungary, Czechoslovakia, the kind of consequences that, that, that they faced. And so in order to service debts, Actually, living standards declined during the 1980s uh, across Eastern Europe. Whichever was the chosen, uh, whichever course was chosen would cause enormous difficulties and the problems posed for the communist regimes in the mid-1970s were never in fact solved. The long-form modernisation was never achieved. The communist states had hobbled themselves in a vain attempt to close the technology gap with the West. Scientific socialism just could not cope with science. The problem was even more profound. Borrowing from the West enabled the regimes of Eastern Europe to avoid fundamentally restructuring. By holding out this hope of, shortcut to modern, of a shortcut to modernisation, Western capital, in fact, allowed the inner contradictions of socialism time, um, time in which to mature and to wreck the system. So there's some really powerful um, kind of macroeconomic stuff here that appears to be kind of crushing um, Eastern Europe uh, as it attempts to sort of work its way out of low growth, low productivity and stagnation. So we talk about Czechoslovakia here. One of Husak's first priorities after becoming first secretary, this is who uh, succeeded Alexander Dubček, uh, was to purge the Communist Party of reformists and revisionists. The process began in 1970 and was to last for four years. By the end of it, 327,000 party members had lost their party cards and a further 150,000 had resigned voluntarily. The party had been cut by one third. The purge was less rigorous in Slovakia, but was particularly vicious among the main architects of its reforms, the intelligentsia. Two out of three members of the Writers' Union lost their jobs, 900 university teachers were sacked and 21 academic institutions were closed between 1969 and 1971. For the first time since 1821, no, not one literary journal was published in Bohemia and Moravia. The main effects of the purge were to remove any potential opposition to the 69ers um, and to create a virtual party in waiting, one which was far more able and much more respected than the one in office. It was one of the more remarkable features of the post-1968 Czechoslovak history, that this group had such little effect on the country. Its lack of impact showed both its demoralisation and the extent to which all communists were now discredited in the popular mind. When opposition to Huzak's regime did appear, it was outside rather, um, uh, rather than inside the party, whether ruling or in the wings. Communism was now seen more than ever as a foreign imposition. The 
problem that Soviet communism in Czechoslovakia had, uh, and again, we'll look at this more and more in, in the, over the next few months, is that it was unable to solve any of, uh, as we've just seen, any of the fundamental economic questions that um, the, 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 the public wanted answering. And the promise of uh, communism, which had never, be, you know, if it had ever been believed in the Soviet Union, it had certainly never believed, been believed in places like Czechoslovakia, um, was now uh, kind of e evaporating. There was, you know, the, the, there was not even a pretense anymore that's uh, that a state a, a state of kind of a communist uh, abundance could be reached uh, and there wasn't even a kind of a, a sense that um the the party was in any way kind of de dedicated to that this this notion of mature socialism of uh, if you you know now that we've uh, reinstalled law and order, and the we the, the kind of the, the troublemakers are being uh, crushed, purged, or thrown in prison. Um, the um, plan is now to offer some kind of um, material growth, some kind of sense of, of uh, not necessarily abundance, but gradually improved living standards. Um, and as we've seen, there are reasons why that, that failed. So in a way, the end of communism in 1989 is kind of prefigured in 1968. So 21, year, 21 further years of stagnation in which communism is seen as there's nothing emancipatory about it. There is nothing even particularly useful about it. What it is, and here's the key bit, which I think explains 1989 far more competently, far more clearly, it is a foreign imposition. In a way, the Velvet Revolution of 1989 was almost a series of, of nationalist moments in uh, Eastern Europe. Uh, liberalism loves to claim... Um, the, uh, the the fall of the Berlin Wall for its own. But I wonder whether it's really got to do with the idea that um, the, 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 the nationhood or, or kind of nationalist movements were becoming more confident, more assertive, and they had a new narrative, a new story. Uh, the story of communism had failed and the story of um, national identity um, I'm not suggesting that liberals and Democrats weren't kind of uh, waiting in the wings to articulate themselves. People like Václav Havel um, is, is, is a classic example. But it, the, the, for the masses of people that didn't like the Russians, and it would be when they had uh, experienced um, the Red Army appear, on the streets of Prague in 68. They had, you know, they, they had come into contact not so much with an ideology, but with Russians. And uh, that's what they would they, they encountered, and that's who, who shot at them. Um, and the uh, sense that um, they were under an ideological occupation from another country. Uh, and uh, as in so many ways, 
with these things. If you read um, Benedict Anderson's uh, Imagined Communities, nationalism and the workings of nations and the stirrings of nations and the development of national identity and the resurgence of national identity and the, the reaffirmation of national identity um, is you know, the, the, almost the prime operative factor of the 20th century. Okay, we're going to finish there and I'll catch you on the next Explaining History podcast um, and have yourselves a great weekend. Do check us out on Patreon if you can and swing by uh, the Facebook group and um, thanks very much for listening. All the best. Bye-bye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.